in this sermon series in Romans chapter 12, and perhaps you're new to the Bible, but, but it's written by a guy named Paul, and he's writing to these churches, um, kind of uh, not scattered, but there are they're, uh, several of them. And one of the things he talks about is this theme of, of we, that when it comes to community, the whole chapter, not the whole chapter, but most of the chapter is on how to live as a church, how to uh, live as a community of a church. And it's where we lay down our individualism. It's where we lay down our, our agenda for the sake of the good. It's pretty much we is greater than me. That's the name of the series. And I'm so happy with all the work that went into this set design because it really, um, I think, illustrates in a vibrant way what Romans 12 was all about. But before we get to uh, the, the sense of community, and we're going to spend a lot of weeks on that, um, he actually begins with what you need to do individually to really make the we strong. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. And we're going to be going through Romans 12 sequentially all the way through uh, September 1st, as I mentioned. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. Let me pray for us this morning. God in heaven, thank you so much. Thank you for fun. Thank you for life. Thank you for laughter. And God, for us to come together and to worship you, to um, increase your reputation, which that's what it means to glorify you. So God, I pray that uh, wherever we're at this morning, we might be in a funk, we might be at a really good place, Lord, that we be open to your voice, because we believe in a God who speaks today, not just yesterday, but speaks today and tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray, everybody said, amen. So we pick it up in Romans chapter 12, I'm going to be reading from New Living Translation, you can follow along with the slides, or your teaching notes, or perhaps you have a Bible app as well, and we begin with this, and so, another word for that would be therefore. And so, he's looking back at the first 11 chapters. So he's saying, okay, therefore, and so, because of all that I've written in the first 11 chapters, and if you know anything about Romans, he writes a lot. Uh, One scholar calls Romans uh, the, the muscle of Paul's theology. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him, he says. I love that. And we get to verse 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And we're going to spend this morning just on two verses. I think sometimes we feel like we have to spend uh, time when we read the Bible or perhaps we come to a sermon that there has to be several verses, but um, as we see here, two verses is is plenty. This is some really profound, deep thinking by Paul. And as he talks about this, what what kind of propels this, and so, um, I plead with you, and so, my dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God. I'll get to give your bodies to God in a second, but notice that Paul begins with, my dear brothers and sisters, because the previous three chapters, he's been talking to the Jewish believers. He's been talking about Israel. He's been talking about what, what's to come for uh, people that have uh, Jewish blood. And now he reaches out not only to Jewish believers, but also the Gentile believers, and he has an endearing statement. My dear brothers and sisters, he wants to develop that bond with them. 
And then he moves into, not a command, he doesn't say, hey, you have to do this. He says, I plead with you. Or in some translations, I urge you. Or I entreat you. And what he's trying to do is persuade them. Because the choice is theirs. This is not a, like a, you have to do this. The choice is yours. I plead with you. Give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. He begins with that. And as we look at this, this, uh, this really a visual of a sacrifice. Paul, no doubt, has in his mind this idea of a sacrifice. is actually, uh, in the Old Testament, laying an animal on an altar, giving the entire animal, a bull or a goat or a pigeon, what have you, on the altar for a sacrifice. He has that in his mind. We have, we have the, the sacrificial imagery throughout the whole thing. And he says, give your bodies. Give your bodies to God. So in your teaching notes, because of God's mercies, number one, give your bodies to God. Not your arms, not your legs, as if you could. Your bodies, the totality of your life, just like a sacrifice in the Old, in the Old Testament. All of you, 100%. I mean, that's, that's very, very strong. And you do that because of these mercies. And if you read the previous 11 chapters of Romans, you'll find out every chapter has some mention, some mention where Paul enumerates the mercies of God. Every chapter, every chapter, every chapter. And you might be here and thinking, okay, what is mercy? What is mercy? Mercy is defined as something that you do wrong, you cross the line, and deserve a certain kind of penalty, and yet God lets you off the hook. It's different from grace. It's where you have committed a wrong. It reminds me of a time um, I moved from Wisconsin, and I had a class size of 35 in Spring Valley, Wisconsin. We lived on a farm for eight years. We moved to Cottage Grove, Minnesota, um, my 10th grade year, and my class size now was 475. And it was staggering. But during the course of the year, I made a couple of good friends, Scott Swanson and Mike Dillison, Swanee and Ditt. And uh, we spent a lot of time together that summer of, uh, after our sophomore year. Go to movies together, go to Sal's Pizzeria in Cottage Grove. We go to SA, we play golf, we would uh, spend time at each other's house. And then finally, I got my driver's license. Swanee and Ditt were older than me, so they got their driver's license first. I failed mine on the first time. I had a car just backing out 30 seconds into my driver's test. That's a story for another time. Anyways, um, so I got another chance, got my license. And then, you know, it's a summer night, a nondescript summer night. We're bored. So we think, hey, we should play hide and seek with our cars. Because there is a brand new subdivision in Cottage Grove that none of us knew the streets at all. It would be a perfect place for hide-and-seek. So we recruited another friend, Dave Limblad, to join us. So it was Mike, and, or it was Ditt and uh, Dave in uh, Ditt's uh, cherry red uh, Nova with red fuzzy dice. And then I had this big, long, brown car, 77 uh, Plymouth whatever. It was a big boat. That's one of the reasons why I think I flunked, too. It was just like... 20 feet or 30 feet long. Anyways, um, so, uh, so we're, we're in that uh, subdivision, and the game went like this. If you're it, you have your car lights on, and then if you're hiding, you have about a minute or two to go find a place, with your lights off, of course, you don't want to be seen, uh, find a place to hide your car. And there were a lot of these cul-de-sacs, a lot of these courts, a lot of these circles, and um, we played for about an hour and a half, just zipping around, 
breaking uh, many traffic uh, laws, going through stop signs, going, driving too fast in a residential area, etc. It's kind of what you do when you're 16, right? Anyways, um, so, but what happens is that um, uh, Swanee and I are, are winning. I'm driving, Swanee's next to me, and um, it's our turn to hide. So we find this great cul-de-sac, and because the subdivision was just being built, there were no light uh, uh, poles there at all. It was perfect. It was dark. So we were just kind of camped out right there. And then all of a sudden uh, comes this car screaming around the corner, screeching tires, turns the car around. Woo, 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 woo. It's the uh, Cosgrove PD. And then all of a sudden, with, he puts a spotlight right on us and, and uh, over the speaker, get out with your hands up. Okay, we're 16 years old. This is my first encounter with a police officer, honestly. And so, so Swanee and I nervously get outside of my car, and as we're kind of like standing there, I look over and I can see Dit and Dave slowly driving by and going home. <laughs> and anyways, a police officer uh, brings us into the back seat, and Swanee, our faces are white. We're like just scared. What's going to happen? We're going to be in jail for like three years or something. We don't know. We're 16. And uh, he begins asking a bunch of questions. He searches my car. He tells us that there's been a, a, a number of burglaries in the uh, subdivision and then um, asks our address. And then he says, what are you guys doing? And we said, we're playing hide and seek. And, uh, and then he's asking, okay, who did you play with? And we were so nervous, we couldn't, we couldn't rem- remember Mike's or Dit's uh, address. It was way off. And pretty soon I just said, he has a cherry red Nova with, with, with red fuzzy dice because <laughs> I couldn't remember his address of his house. And then it was really interesting, that police officer, he could have done a lot of things. And he just turned to us and he said, you know, guys, I'm going to let you off. No citations. Um, just don't do this again. And, uh, he, and he said it with a compassion. And my impression of that police officer really was profound because going forward, my view towards police officers um, is, is way high. And we live in a world, in a society, where police officers are uh, point, they're singled out so much by our media. And I've always had a high respect for police officers, but that compassion and that mercy, that police officer gave us mercy. He could have said it us, he could have fined us, he could have taken our licenses away, but he didn't. He let us off the hook. And Paul is saying the same thing. God lets you off the hook because in the previous chapters, we are sinners. We have fallen short. And in light of what God has done, where we are really guilty, he says, no, you're innocent because of Jesus Christ. So as a result of that, that ought to propel you, just like my view and my value for police officers, even to this day, um, really made a difference. And he says, in light of that, in light of God's mercies, okay, let that, let that propel you. Let, let that be the fuel for what you do. And he says, give your bodies to God. Now, it's very interesting why he says bodies. Um, because back then, in the first century, most Greek people, and he's writing to Greek people, actually believed that the body was like a, an embarrassing um, sort of uh, tomb where they actually believed that uh, that the, the spirit inside them was trapped. And once they died, it would actually be freed. That the body was like a prison. And, and yet Paul says right away, give your bodies to God. Lay it on the altar. It reminds me 
of a research project by uh, some scholars in England not too long ago where they studied ants in Central and um, Southern uh, um, America. And what they found with these ants is that these ants would uh, travel, when the army would travel to get, go get food and such, if they came across like a hole or a pothole or a chasm, what would happen is that a handful of ants would make sort of this drawbridge so that the whole crew, the whole team, could go across and go get the food and then take the food, and the, the, the ants are still at the drawbridge there. They would come back, cross the drawbridge, and then these ants would get up and then uh, join their uh, comrades. Sometimes 200,000 ants. And that's what Paul is saying. Lay yourselves down. Lay yourselves down so that God can do wonderful work in your life. Self-sacrifice. It's amazing. And it's also shocking for us to think about that. Because when it comes to sacrifice, we automatically think of death, but Paul doesn't mean that. What he means, actually, is the fact that when we offer ourselves voluntarily, self-sacrifice, self-offering, laying our bodies down for God, it's actually not about death. It's about coming alive and the new life that bursts through us and putting to death the evil things in our lives. It's a reversal of what we think sacrifice is. And also, as we give our bodies to God, we need to realize that you and I no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to God and his purposes. We're God's property. And I think for some of us, that might be hard to understand that. But we are, we're, we are part of God's plan. He doesn't want something from us. He wants us. I'd like you to write that down. He doesn't want something from us. He wants us. Or to make it personal, he doesn't want something from you. He wants you. The totality of your life. That's what he means by body, that imagery. And it's just remarkable. As I spend time with uh, parents and families in this church, and I had a dinner recently with a family from our church and some others the last few months. And when I talk to them, hearing and observing their sacrifice to their kids, they're like the, these ants that make a drawing bridge for their kids to be able to cross over, whether they're young children or they're teens or young adults or they're adults, that parents sacrifice, where they kind of put their bodies down in a sense and, so that their kids can get across to a better life better education, maybe it's sports, maybe it's theater, maybe it's music, whatever that is, is that they lay themselves down. And it's remarkable. And likewise, Paul is saying, do the same thing. Give yourself to God. And God will not accept substitutes. He wants us. That the fact that you and I, as we come to God and, are, and we give our bodies to God, is that now we are part of God's property. God doesn't want something from us. He wants us. What is holding you back? What's holding me back from going all in? From really putting it all on for God and say, here I am, as we were just singing. Here I am. What's holding you back? Maybe some of us are giving 25% or 50% or what have you. What's holding you back from going 100%? And not only because of God's mercies do we uh, give our bodies to God, but in your teaching notes, secondly, because of God's mercies, don't be squeezed into the mold of this world. And it's very easy for you and I to be squeezed in the mold of this world. Verse 2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, okay? In the Philips Bible, he, he actually call, he translates it as 
Don't be squeezed into the mold of this world. Don't give in to the way the world is. And the thing is, that's hard for you and I because by nature, we imitate. By na- the human nature is to imitate people around us. How many of you guys have kids who imitate maybe you or another, your spouse or an uncle? or They like do the same walk or the voice or something like that? How many of you have kids that have done that? Yeah, my kids do that all the time. Uh, my my uh, son Alex and my daughter Allison... Uh, because my, my dad has uh, a few idiosyncrasies, they would imitate him at a very young age. We imitate by nature. So we have to be careful of this, because we can give in to imitating this world, because we have to have role models. Uh, the human life typically isn't uh, started from scratch and does not have any, any influence from role models or such. You and I typically have many influences in our lives. We don't live in a vacuum. And we have to be careful, though, that we don't be squeezed into the mold of this world. And for you and I, we need to stop letting the world dictate things to us. Instead of figuring out how to think according to the world, we need to think in the way of God. Speaking and acting is appropriate for God and not for this world. You and I are called to be countercultural. To not give in to the way of the world. It's where you and I live in this world, but we're not of it. Because we realize that we belong to a different kingdom. Reminds me of uh, a story. A guy named William. He was chairman of a board and he had lunch with a, a fellow executive of a different company. And they were really good friends. And William was a chairman of the board for the first time. And after the first year, he had this lunch with this other executive. And the executive asked him, how's it going? And he said, it's been wonderful in several ways. The company's doing well. I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be part of it. And the other executive asked, why only a sev- several ways? You, you seem like you're, you're happy. It seems like things are going really well for you in that company. And he said, well, I just realized what my problem has been. Everybody in the company has a clear idea on how I should act, where I should spend my time what I should do, and so on. I've done my best to make everybody happy. I've gone my way to to have certain procedures in place. I figure out now I've gone too far. I've allowed them to dictate my job. I've made a mistake. I need to turn that around. I need to make my own ideas and what I should be doing from this point forward. And I think in the same way, what what Paul is saying is, is instead of allowing the world to squeeze us in its mold, It's actually where you and I say, as followers of God, I'm not going to go in that direction. I'm not going to do that. And for us to think what that's that's like. Because for you, to refuse to let the world squeeze us in its mole means that we should think, and indeed that we should think, and how we can and can't behave. That you and I need to live in the way of God. And as we do, what happens is that we're transformed. We're transformed by the changing of our mind. As it says in verse 2, but let God transform you into a new person by, the cha- by, the, uh, by changing the way you think. Number three, because of God's mercies, change the way you think. That's number three in your teaching notes. What's interesting, in verse 1, Paul focuses on the body and also infers the mind. And in verse 2 is that he focuses on the mind, but now he infers the body as well. It's all together. It's the whole person. 
And Paul says that because of, of God's mercies, be transformed. How does that happen? By God, allowing God to change the way you think. That's where transformation happens. The hope that you and I will actually be able to think the way God does. And we can't do it by our own efforts. Romans chapter 1 outlines that, if you've read that before. It shows the way of, of wrong thinking. The renewal of the mind is where you and I are able to, to both think straight instead of the twisted thinking that the world would force upon us. For example, the world thinks it's okay to exact revenge. And later on in Romans 12, Paul says, no, don't repay revenge for revenge. In other words, don't think that way. The world thinks that you're a good person who lives a moral life and works hard and everything's going to work out in the end. And yet the Christian way of thinking says that none of us are good. We all fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, and can't do enough to make everything work out in the end. It's only by the mercies of God that we have this relationship through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have to change the way we think. There has to be a metamorphosis of our mind from the inside out, the way we think. And that word transform, where it says in verse 2, let God transform you. And the verb there in the Greek is continually. It's not a one-time deal. It's a daily deal. Let God transform you. Each day we face that. And, and perhaps your prayer is for today and tomorrow, this week, God transform me by the changing of the way I think. Because that's where it starts. That's where it starts. And the question I think for us too is, are we open to changing the way we think? Maybe some of us need what's called a paradigm shift. Remember a story in the popular book in the 1990s, the best-selling book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. He illustrates how changing the way you think a paradigm shift can occur by telling a real story. It's a story about a man who is heading home after a long day at work, exhausted, when he notices another guy who's reading the newspaper and he's got three kids. And his kids are just obnoxious and loud. Uh, one's jumping up and down the seat yelling for McDonald's. Uh, the other one is running up and down the aisles laughing and poking people and doing a variety of things. And the other one just decides to scream at different times. And this guy is watching this happen and he's like ready to scream. Why does this dad put the newspaper down and do something to shut these kids up? It's bothering me. You ever been on a light rail or a bus or something, or maybe you're somewhere, and, the, and kids are just like screaming and they're bothering you? Or maybe adults are screaming and bothering you. Yeah, we've all been there. We've all been there. Um, when my son and I were in New York, we actually stood there at Grand Central Station. It's just an incredible piece of uh, iconic uh, architecture. And we're just standing there. People are running. All these trains going on. And um, people yelling and people jostling and I mean, we, had, we were standing right in the middle of Grand Central. We had to be careful because I thought we were going to get knocked down. And, and that, that's what it was like on this, this train ride. These kids are running around, and, and this guy finally says to the guy, you know, to the, the, the dad with the uh, newspaper, why don't you control your kids? They're out of hand. He yells. And the guy pulls his newspaper down, and with a crackling voice, he says, you know, it's been a hard week for us. Um, we're just coming back from their mom's funeral. And it's been a really hard week. And instantly, that guy's perspective changed. Paradigm shift. He was full of shame for thinking the things that he did. 
And now he had compassion in his heart for, that, for those kids. In fact, as they were running up and down the aisle um, and yelling and such uh, for the remainder of the train ride, that guy actually would play with them and engage with them. That's a paradigm shift. It's where one thing turns into another, and some of us need that. We need a change in our thinking. It might be how you think of God. You need a paradigm shift, a change in the way you're thinking of how you view God, how you think of God. Is God this absent deity way up in the stratosphere who's not really involved in your life? Is God the killjoy in your life where he just throws different things in your path to make life really hard? Is God the kind of God who just wants to cause problems for you? Is God a God of love? And that's it. He's just kind of a big teddy bear. And really there's no direction or no guidance for your life. Some of us need a paradigm shift when we think of God. Some Some of us need a paradigm shift when it comes to viewing other people. Maybe it's Muslims. Maybe for the longest time you look at Muslims and, and you've said things before that you ought to be embarrassed about. And maybe you need to think differently about others, including Muslims or Hindus, other people, people of different ethnicity. Or maybe it's your marriage. You need a paradigm shift on your marriage right now. That right now perhaps you're kind of in status quo, you're kind of on neutral, but it's never in neutral. Either you're growing or it's receding in your marriage. Or perhaps it's the way you think about the church. That some of you maybe are here today, but uh, typically you don't go to church very often because of a certain view that you have towards the church. And as we go through Romans 12, we're going to find out that we is greater than me. That us together is better. And through the work of God in your life and the influence of a loving church community, you can change the way you think. This is not an individual thing. It's where you have people around you, you have God, and you let the mercies of God propel you to change the way you think. So to close, we are to offer the different parts of our bodies together as instruments of righteousness. Romans 6. Then our feet will walk in his paths. Our lips will speak the truth and spread the gospel. Our tongues will bring healing. Our hands will lift up those who have fallen and will perform many mundane tasks to help those. Our arms will embrace the lonely, the least, and the lost. Our ears will be hearing and listening to the cries of the distressed in this country. And our eyes will look humbly and patiently towards God. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, Give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for your mercies. As the writer of Lamentations say, your mercies are new every morning. And God, we have fallen short. We are guilty. And yet, in Christ, you declare us innocent. And more than that, you say that we are the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, which is everything you dreamed of, everything you desired in us, in human beings, is fulfilled in Christ. And that we take on his righteousness onto our lives. And maybe we don't feel righteous. Maybe we don't feel good about who we are. Maybe it's time for a paradigm shift. Maybe it's time for us to think in a different way about ourselves. Pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everybody said? Amen. Amen.